You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you send your spirit now and convict us. Open our eyes to our blind spots, to our jealousies, our strife, and our disunity. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour we need you. Please speak to us now. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Feel free to pull out one of the um, pew Bibles that you have in front of you because we're going to do a little bit of recapping here. Um, we're going to go over what we've, we've already covered in 1 Corinthians. It should be on page 952 and 953 in the Bible before you. But, but first we'll go ahead and take a look at, um, we'll reapproach. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And Paul begins with a sobering statement. He writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. And this is a hard chastisement, and it's worth taking some time and thinking on and mulling over, right? Because despite the fact that we are 2,000 years removed and thousands and thousands of miles removed from the city of Corinth, the difficulties that the Corinthian Christians are dealing with are the same human difficulties that we're dealing with now. The problems that they experienced in the first century AD are the same things that we're experiencing in Birmingham in 2019 today. They're issues of disunity, of jealousy, and of strife. But these ultimately are symptoms of a bigger problem of becoming distracted from the actual gospel and infatuated with idols, with the idols of the world that so easily distract us from Christ. So to do the recap, up to this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has used the first part of his letter to name the main problem that he sees thus far in the Corinthian church. You might remember a few weeks ago when Mike spoke He pointed out the Corinthians were dividing up into groups and to factions of different people who um, named different pastors and and took pride in that, right? Some of them were saying, hey, I follow Paul. I'm a disciple of him. Others were claiming that they followed the apostle Peter. Still others said that they followed Apollos. And he's a guy, if you don't know him, he's mentioned in Acts 18 and described as an eloquent man who was competent in the scriptures. And still others said they kind of boasted and went to the source and said, well, I follow Christ. But Paul makes it clear, like, the divisions here are not motivated by doctrine, they're motivated by pride and arrogance. And so as a response to this, Paul then spends the next chapter and a half reminding the believers at Corinth what they already know and, in theory, what they should already ascribe to. He reminds them that the Christian life is fundamentally different from what they experience in the world and what the world expects of them. Being a Christian will win them no favors in Roman culture. So as a quick refresher, look with me at chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So then Paul then takes a little bit of time and just a few few verses over, so we're going to skip down to verses 27 and 29 to unpack this paradox. He then writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If any of this sounds confusing, take a moment to, to sit back and think about the center, the hinge point of all that we believe as Christians. Jesus was born humbly and in a manger. He was born to a couple of nobodies, Mary and Joseph, who were incredibly poor and had no status in the ancient world. By all normal standards, Jesus' birth and his life were incredibly insignificant. Think about that for a second. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, the magnificent, almighty God incarnate, he took on the form of a servant, and as Paul says in Philippians 2.8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is the crux of what Andrew preached last week, right? Paul has determined to preach nothing but Christ crucified, because apart from Christ, all of the philosophies, all of the things that we put our trust in to try to fix the world, at best, they're just band-aids. And it's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that we and all of creation can be made right again. And so again, all of this flies in the face of everything that the Greco-Roman society held dear, and indeed everything that we hold dear in American society today. Whereas Rome valued impressive rhetoric and status and power, Christianity offers the opposite. It offers simplicity, humility, and weakness. And Paul is now reminding them, the Corinthian believers, and he's reminding us as well what they and what also we signed up for. So, so far, he's highlighted the problem of all the divisions in Corinth. He did that in the first chapter. Then he made his case that the core of Christianity runs against all of these philosophies and all of these, these well-to-do, pompous uh, rhetoric that is great in Rome. And now he's finally in chapter 3, circling back to all of the divisions that he mentioned in chapter 1. So this is why that he begins by saying in chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Why? He explains, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still in the flesh. For while, there is jealousy, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Corinth is going through a major case of the one-uppings. You remember a few weeks ago, uh, Matt mentioned his, uh, his friend or his acquaintance that was nicknamed Stan, because he would always try to one-up people in stories and say, shoot, that ain't nothing. That's basically what the Corinthians are doing here, and that's what Paul wants to reemphasize again. Instead of throwing themselves on Christ and his mercy, they're too busy trying to outdo each other. Roman culture was arrogant and placed a lot of stock in rhetoric and how one appeared in the public eye. So therefore, being associated with a reputable and impressive school of intellectual thought, that was a big, big deal in that day. We even get hints in 2 Corinthians 11 that some people were not impressed with Paul because he wasn't an eloquent speaker. And we do all of this too. If you're anything like me, and I suspect that some of you are, this hits home in an incredibly hard way because this foolishness is exactly what we, we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. To give a personal example, I'm in seminary, as you all know. I'm, I'm in pastor school. And you would think that going to pastor school, I should be really holy and blameless, right? Like, I shouldn't deal with any of this. It's really ironic that, like, this sort of jealousy and strife comes out in a super hard way in seminary. 
instead of looking at my fellow classmates and thinking like, man, I'm really glad that we're both called to ministry, that everyone here is serving the Lord, I look at them as competition. I look at people around me, my friends, and I'm like, did they take, did they take the hard Greek professor or did they take the easy one? What about the paper I wrote last week? Did I get the best grade? Because I want to have a high GPA because it would sound really nice to be the Reverend Dr. Henderson one day and you know, I want to keep that as an open option. So even the place where you would think that I would be focused on the triune God, that that would be the center of my attention, that, that would be the center of my attention, the flesh still grabs hold of me and I succumb to idols. Or take social media. Don't even get us started on that. Like everyone can, can identify with that. Even, even as I was writing this sermon, I took a little break. I, I procrastinated more, more actually. And I, I was looking through Instagram and I, I came across a profile of one of my acquaintances from college who, uh, he moved out to LA to try his hand at acting. And every time I look at his profile, he has like another 1,000 followers. He's, he's doing very well. And he's always posting a very flattering picture of himself and, and something else about a new role that he has or a new miniseries that he got cast in. He, he was on like This Is Us and other things. And as the angsty theater high school kid that I was, this really stirs up some jealousy in me because that was supposed to be me. And we all fall prey to this sort of striving and jealousy. So for you, it might not be you know theater or anything like that. It may be school. It, it may not be. But it could just be like where you went to school, Alabama, Auburn. It could be if you went to an Ivy League. If you're a parent, it could be how your kids are perceived, what sort of hobbies they have, whether they're well-behaved. It could be simply like your level of attractiveness, the places that you've been, the people that you know. All of these things, in summary, if, if it's anything that takes our eyes off of Christ, these become idols. Our inclination and our disposition is to step on the faces of other people to exalt ourselves. And in a weird sort of way, we're looking to other people for our justification rather than God. Even when we're using them or we're treating them poorly, they're stepping stones to exalt ourselves. And this is the reason that in Romans 1.25, Paul says that the wrath of God has been revealed against all of humanity. It's because sinful humanity has exchanged the truth of God for a lie and it has worshipped and served the creator, or I'm sorry, the creation, rather than the creator. And that's the source of the jealousy here. Paul is building his case to show us that the remedy for all of the jealousies is not just try harder. The remedy is him. And him, and him, he's all over here, and if we open our eyes and pay attention, we see all of these depictions trying to point us back to Christ, and yet we're so curved in on ourselves that the only thing we can pay attention to is exalting ourselves. In, excuse me, in Matthew 14, you can find that on page 820 if you like. I'm just going to paraphrase a quick story. Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee. And he tells his disciples to get into the boat and to cross to the other side. He's going to take some time for himself to pray for a little bit. And he's going to meet them on the other side after that. And so they begin their journey across the Sea of Galilee. And night falls, and what should have been a relatively easy journey takes a turn south. The wind gets a little more violence, and the waves get a little higher, and the rain starts to pour, and next thing they know, they're in the midst of a storm, and they can't get to shore. And it's the middle of the night now, and they're afraid, because the storm is threatening to sink their ship. 
And then to make matters worse, they see something out in the distance, someone walking on the water to them, and it appears that it's an apparition. It's some sort of ghost coming towards them, and they're very afraid because not only is their boat going to sink, they're now being haunted. But we know the story. It's, it's, not, it's not a ghost. It's God. It's Jesus walking on the water to them, and he calls out to them, and he says, Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter that impetuous apostle boldly asked Christ, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And the Lord gives him permission, and Peter hops out of the boat, and he starts to take a few steps towards Jesus. But then Matthew tells us, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And this right here is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 3. What is the cause of jealousy and strife and disunity in Corinth and, and in our lives here today in Birmingham? It's the very thing that caused Peter to sink. It's, it's a single glance away from Christ to anything else. So if you look now, we're back in 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul then asks... What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul and Apollos are simply signposts pointing ahead to Christ. They're not meant to be fixated upon. They're not idols. They're nothing to establish our status. Instead, they're simply arrows saying, this is Christ. He's the one. Go to him. Put your faith in him. Similarly, we could ask our same questions for all of our other distractions. What are these things? What are my scholastic achievements? What is the prestige of my degree? What is my reputation and rank at work? What are my children's hobbies and their reputations? What, what are the people I know and the places I've been? What are all of these things? They're certainly not our justification. They can, in some ways, be signposts pointing to Christ, but they can't redeem us. And if they're not pointing us back to Christ, if they're not the center of our lives, or I'm sorry, if they are the center of our lives, and they're not pointing us to Christ, then that's a serious problem. Paul continues in verse 6. He says that I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is a pushback against any sort of clerical elitism, those who preach the gospel are merely servants, just servants of Christ. The clergy should constantly be directing you back to the triune God. If I, or if Matt, or if Zach, or if Andrew, or if Mike, or if anyone here tells you to, to worship anything or anyone other than the triune God, let us be cursed, get rid of us, pull us down from the pulpit. And now skip ahead with me to verse 11. This is, this is the capstone of our passage, so if you don't pay attention to anything else, Bear with me for two minutes and focus in on this. In verse 11, Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the whole argument right here. This is the point of everything Paul has been leading up to in his letter so far. What do you do about the jealousy and strife? What do you do about the disunity among you? You look back to your foundation, to Jesus. Remember Peter? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? God is not far from us. He longs to be in relationship with us and to heal us from our wounds and from our disunities and our jealousies and our strifes. In just a few minutes, Colin and Jocelyn Cordova are going to receive the sacrament of baptism and be united to Christ through the waters of baptism. If you hold out, if you get your pamphlet and you, uh, your bulletin and you turn with me to page 14, you're going to see a series of questions that they're going to answer. Now, if you're baptized in a liturgical setting like an Anglican tradition or, or some other tradition, you probably answered a series of questions very similar or someone answered them on your behalf until you were able to make your faith your own. If you look at page 14, halfway down, I think it's worth meditating on these questions for a second because they're not just for the day of baptism. Christian discipleship is daily. It's, it's a constant turning back to Christ. So the questions they're going to answer, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? And because there's no neutral zone, because you can't do any of these things without turning to Christ, in baptism we're also asked, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace and love? Do you promise to follow and obey him as Lord? These are not questions just for today. They're not questions just for the time of your baptism. They're questions that are worth meditating when you wake up in the morning, when you go to lunch, in the sleepy afternoons when you're taking your coffee break and right before you go to bed. Do you renounce Satan? And do you turn to Jesus Christ? Because the only way that we will ever truly be unified and the only way that we'll ever overcome our jealousies and our strivings with each other is as if we are in Christ and if we turn to him daily. Renounce Satan. Renounce him every day in daily repentance and turn to Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.